Old Testament Background to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. The twelfth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on December 28, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 5, Translation, Installment 2 accompanies this talk. Okay, we're going to press on in the book of Hebrews. So far, what we've seen in the first section of the book, of the exhortation, we have an an initial exhortation where he argues that even though they may have expected for the Messiah to be God himself showing up in the form of a human being, a theophany, and that they would have preferred that, that would have been more Messiah-like in their view. Paul argues that nonetheless, if we look at the Old Testament prophecies, it's the human son of David, the one with the title son of God, who's a much bigger deal than any theophany could ever hope to be. And so a human being who was mortal, who could be killed, who died, who was defeated by the Romans, As humiliating as that might seem, nonetheless, he is the exalted one, the most exalted being in all of God's universe. Therefore, he says, and his exhortation is, so pay attention to him. What Jesus came into the world to deliver as God's revelation to mankind, we dare not ignore it. Because if God expects us to listen to burning bushes when they speak to us or pillars of fire and cloud when they speak to us. If God expects us to obey him, then how much more important is it that we obey his son, the most exalted and majestic manifestation of God himself? That was the first section. We started the last section two weeks ago, and there he shifts gears. Now it's the question of... This thing you're going back to, this Judaism, keeping the law, the law that was delivered to Moses, you think Moses is a big deal. He is. Moses was truly a big deal. He was the most important person in ancient Israel, such that God had a relationship with him that he had to no other prophet. He spoke to Moses face to face. So Moses was a huge big deal. But Moses is just like a servant in the household compared to Jesus. Jesus is the son, the heir, the one who represents the owner himself, the son of the owner himself. He's a much bigger deal than Moses could ever dream of being. So if you think it was important to honor and obey and pay attention to Moses, how much more important is it that we pay attention to the son? And what the son comes to teach us, we need to pay attention to. Well, we're right in the middle of that, But in order to understand the second part of the second section, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament again. He's going to quote Psalm 95, and I'll read that here in a second. Just on an aside, Hebrews is an amazing book if we want to have any kind of 
understanding of how Jesus and the apostles, and usually the apostles, how the apostles read and interpreted and understood the Old Testament. And the way he deals with Psalm 95 here is going to be an an excellent example of that. Their exegesis of the Old Testament is straightforward, it is intelligent, it is rational, it is simple, there's no double levels of meaning, there's no symbolism, there's no numerology, there's no hidden messages in the scripture. That's not how they treat the scripture. They read it, take it at face value, understand it, and then apply it. Now, I know it doesn't always appear that way, but that's the nice thing about Psalm 95, is there isn't even the appearance of anything funky going on. It's just an incredibly straightforward reading of the message of Psalm 95 as David, the author of the psalm, intended it. Let me, I'm going to read the whole psalm here. Paul's going to quote about half of it in Hebrews, and then he's going to comment on it and apply it to their situation. O come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now begins the quote. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Matzah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Okay, That's the psalm that we need to understand in order to understand what Paul is going to do with it in Hebrews. But notice that he makes some references there. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Matzah in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work, and so on and so forth. We need to understand, in order to understand the psalm, we need to understand the background here in the Old Testament. So let me briefly go through the chronology of events that he's talking about. This is in the context of the Exodus. You know the Exodus account, you might have already seen the movie, but where God leads the people out of Egypt will pick up with them crossing the Red Sea or whatever sea it was. It may not have been the Red Sea, but may have been the Gulf of Aqaba. It may have been one of those other bodies of water there. But they miraculously crossed the sea, delivered from the pursuing Egyptian army that was drowned in the sea. And they so they saw this spectacular deliverance by God, an incredibly dramatically miraculous event. And it is important to see, I know I've mentioned this before, but you don't get any time in all of history a time where God makes himself as explicit as he does to Israel during the time of the Exodus. The plagues in Egypt, but particularly the the parting of the sea and the deliverance of Israel from the Egyptian army and the things that that happen after that, 
are spectacular, dramatic events where it is crystal clear that God is there, God is real, and God is intervening in history on their behalf. Couldn't be clearer. That's not our lives. God does not pull back the veil and show himself to us, at least he doesn't to me, show himself to us as clearly and as explicitly and as dramatically and as unmistakably as he did to the people of Israel during this time. And that's part of, I think, what the psalm is about, is that they really have no excuse. It's not like God was working on their behalf back behind the scenes through events that you could easily dismiss as coincidental or wasn't I lucky or wasn't I fortunate or whatever. It is clear that the God who revealed himself to Abraham, who revealed himself again to Moses, is there, is present, is leading them, and is working on their behalf. It's crystal clear. So he parts the sea and drowns the army that's pursuing them to kill them. And then then they travel through a place called the wilderness of Shur, or desert, probably a desert region, a desert of Shur, for three days. Then three days later, they arrive at a place where a pool of water, and they have no water, they're out of water, but the water is probably poisonous. It sometimes gets translated bitter. In any case, it's not potable water. You can't drink it. So what do they do? They grumble. It uses the the language grumble, but I think the idea is more like it's a revolt. It's a rebellion. They're very restive, and at times they're ready to stone Moses. A little later in the story, they want to choose a leader who will lead them back into Egypt. <laughs> let's dump this Moses guy and let's get rid of him, get a new leader and have somebody take us back to Egypt. So they rebel against the leadership of Moses and Moses is God. I mean, they, they are going hand in hand. So they're rebelling. There's a revolt happening. God, and this is the first time, and it's three days after the parting of the sea, right? Three days. God instructs Moses to put a particular tree in the water. The tree turns the water, makes it potable, and they drink and they are refreshed. And God uses that opportunity at that point to say, look, if you will obey what I say, you'll be okay. Just listen to my voice listen to my instruction, and do as I instruct you to do. As long as you do that, you'll be fine, and you'll survive. So he doesn't scold them at this point. He doesn't punish anybody. Nobody is struck dead. No plagues happen. This is a learning opportunity for Israel. I know you thought that you were without water, but I can come through for you. I'll take care of you. And he did so miraculously. Then they travel on to a place called Elim. Elim is a huge oasis described as having 12 springs and 70 date palms. They're just fine at Elim. But they are led on, and remember during this whole time, they're being led by God, Yahweh, in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The cloud leads them on now, and they go through the wilderness, the desert of, I forgot to check the Hebrew here, I think it's probably Sin rather than Sin, but I'm not sure. The, the desert of Sin, and now we're about a month and a half out of Egypt, so a month and a half after the Exodus, they find themselves without any food to eat, 
and the second episode of the people grumbling against Moses and God occurs. God responds. He mentions to Moses that he doesn't much like the complaining and the grumbling, but nonetheless, in the evening, they're going to have quail to eat, and in the morning, they're going to have bread to eat. And that's when the manna begins. They have quail that evening that come into the camp, and they kill the quail and can eat the quail. And then the next morning, they have this, they know not what it is, covering the ground, and all they have to do is go out and collect it and eat it. And the text describes it as like coriander seed with honey. It's sort of a sweet, seedy wafer that they can eat. And I won't go into the particulars about that, but God gives them some particular instructions. It'll be there every morning. Only gather enough to eat. No point in storing it because I'm going to have send worms to eat anything that's left over. So, so just gather what you need to eat. On the Sabbath, uh, gather for two days, and I won't send my worms to eat it. It'll be just fine, and it'll last you for two days. So those are the instructions that they are to follow in order to be taken care of by God. So they're fed, and text says for the next 40 years, they eat this manna that shows up every morning. Now, from Elim then, they, or from the wilderness of, of Sin, they travel by stages, it says, to a place called Rephidim. And Rephidim is halfway between the oasis Elim and Sinai, where they're ultimately headed, Mount Sinai. So they travel in stages to Rephidim. Finally, when they reach Rephidim, which later is going to be renamed Matzah on the one hand, or alternately Meribah. Those names become the new names for Rephidim. They have no water to drink again, so they begin grumbling again. They begin to revolt again. And this is a particularly sharp and bitter revolt, apparently, so much so that is named the place of the revolt, of the quarrel with Moses and God. And I'm going to read that account here in a second. And then God responds, rebuking them on the one hand, but he also delivers them with a miracle. And let me read that account here. This is in Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, as I said, they translate it quarreled, but to our ears, in our idiom, I think that diminishes what's going on here. This is some kind of revolt. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? I want to come back to that in a second. Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do? To this people, a little more and they will stone me. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
he named the place Matzah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Okay, let's talk about a few of the details of that account. Okay, first of all, he named the place Matzah and Meribah is like naming the place the revolt and the test, or the, the place of the revolt, or the place of the test, something like that. So this is such a noteworthy event in the history of Israel that this place gets named after what happens there, and that new name takes the place of the original name, Rephidim. What does he mean by the test? And that's critical, because I think to our ears, to describe it as the test doesn't really communicate what's going on here. The best way to understand what he means is the very last line. And because they tested Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Or, and I think a better way to translate that here would be, is Yahweh for us or not? Does he mean us well? Does he mean to benefit us? Is he on our side? Or is he against us? Is he out to kill us here? Now, the thing that's critical to understand is... Put this in its context. The people were in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were a slave class in Egypt. And God came, sent Moses to lead them out of their captivity and their bondage in Egypt. To what end? He tells them, there's a land that I promised to give your father. I'm going to lead you out. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to take you to the land that I promised to your father Abraham, and I'm going to give you security and peace in the land and rest from your enemies. I'm going to keep all of your enemies away from you so that you can live in tranquility and peace, prosperity in the land that I have promised to give to you. That's my project. That's what I'm up to. Okay, that's what he said he's going to do. And then he demonstrates his desire to do that with these dramatic, spectacularly miraculous things that he did to bring that about. Not only to move Pharaoh to let them go originally, but after the ten plagues convinces Pharaoh or beats him down enough that Pharaoh will let them go, then when the pursuing army comes after them, God delivers them miraculously from the army that's pursuing them. Then when they were without water, he provided water. When they were without food, he provided food. Everything that he has done has been to come through for them on their behalf to take care of them and feed them and protect them. And yet, they're asking the question here, okay, now why did God do all that? Why did God bring us this far out here in the wilderness so that we would die of thirst, right? That's what he's doing. Now, from our perspective, that may just seem silly, but I think we have to appreciate how much like us that truly is. It is so easy to take for granted the wonderful good things, the blessings that God has given to us, to take them for granted, to ultimately, out of a sense of kind of entitlement, well, he made me and he put me here, he better take care of me. And out of that sense of entitlement, we just sort of take it for granted. Well, of course, of course he delivered me. Of course he fed me. Of course he provided for me. He should do that. He's God. And then when things don't exactly go the way we want them to go and we get uncomfortable, we begin to get cynical toward God. Oh, God is just 
playing with me. God does not have my best interest in mind. He's just playing with me. That's the perspective that they're taking. Oh, I see. He delivered me from the army of the Egyptians so he could die of thirst in the wilderness. That's what he was doing. And crazy thinking. But it is so like human beings. It's so like the rebellious human heart. What we're going to see throughout this whole section that Paul is dealing with here is the ultimate measure of righteousness, if you will, is not whether we are good. It's not whether we are moral. It's not whether we live upright lives, as important as all that is. But we can slap all that stuff on the outside of our lives and still have a heart that doesn't trust God that does not trust our creator and has this sort of what Paul is going to call, what the psalm is going to call a hardness of heart, a hardened against God. It's that relationship between me, the creature, and my creator that is really the ultimate and final test of whether I'm a righteous person or not, whether I belong to God or not. And what we're finding here is the evidence of the hardness of the heart of these original Israelites who were delivered from Egypt. All they can think is, God's not on my side. God's not for me. He said he was. That was a head fake. He's really out to destroy me and kill me. That's what he's doing. So the language that the Bible uses is that that's testing Yahweh. As you know, it's right around this event that Moses in Deuteronomy is is remembering this event when he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which is what Jesus quotes when he's being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. God had told them back at Marah when he made the waters potable, drinkable again, he had told them, all you have to do is obey everything, all of my instructions, and I will protect you. I will take care of you. You'll be fine. All you have to do is do what I say to do. And that's what Moses is remembering. It's by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's God's Torah. It's God's instruction. It's God's telling me what he wants me to do. If I simply give heed to what God wants me to do, I'll be fine. God will take care of me. It's not by managing to find food, however I find food, that I live. Because I can manage to find food and I'll be struck dead. If I really want to survive... If I really want life, then I need to pay attention to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I need to heed his instruction. That's what Jesus recognized when Satan came along and said, well, you know, turn the rocks into bread. It doesn't matter how you get the bread. If you have the ability to turn rocks into bread, do that. It doesn't really matter. As long as you got bread, you're going to make it, right? No, you're going to make it if you pay attention and give heed to every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Those are the people that are going to make it. So here in the wilderness, in what sense are they testing Yahweh? In the same way that Jesus recognized that you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God, you shouldn't test the Lord your God. In that case, the test of the Lord his God was jump off the pinnacle of the temple. God will send his angels to bear you up and protect you, right? So jump. And Jesus says, no, it says you shall not tempt or test, literally, you shall not test the Lord your God. What does that mean? 
the reason it would be seductively attractive to jump off the pinnacle of the temple would be if I need from God to prove to me that he's for me. If I need right now for God to prove himself to me, then I will set up a carnival act for him to perform in. I will set up a test for him. If you really love me, God, then you will do this. I'll jump and you catch me. If you really love me, you will catch me. That's why that's the only reason that that would be at all attractive. Now, that's one thing to test God if God has never proven himself to me. If I lack proof, then I think God would look on my need for proof with some kind of compassion. You need proof? Okay, I'll prove myself to you. But Israel, at this point in their history, in their chronology, does not lack proof. He delivered for them from Egypt. He opened up the sea for them to walk on on dry land. He drowned the pursuing army of Pharaoh. He fed them when they needed food miraculously. He gave them drink to drink when they needed water miraculously. He gave them meat to eat when they needed meat miraculously. Over and over and over again, God has proved himself to them. So now, once again, they lack water. And what is their response? Well, God sure better give us some water. And I'm not sure he's for us. He needs to prove himself to us by giving us water. And that's what God recognizes is the ultimate heart attitude of Israel. And he says, because they tested Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh for us or not? It's the heart of unbelief. It's a hardened heart that looks at all the evidence that God is for us and still is willing to confront God with the question, are you for us or not? What's it going to take? How much does he have to keep proving himself before you will let your heart just embrace the truth that God is for us? He is not against us. He is for us. Okay, I think I'm done with Exodus 17, unless you have some questions. Let me pause for questions there. Yeah, I got big sympathy for the Jews in the desert. It strikes me if you take someone out of a slave class, it's going to take a long time for them to spiritually and psychologically acclimate to the idea that there's a good God. Speaking then from a position of maybe having a father that was kind of a suspect moral character, like I read a lot about the Jews in the desert, and it strikes me that the point first for the Jews is to grasp that they will survive with God before they understand the concept of how God will help them thrive. You get a sense that the point is the desert for them at this point. The point is that they need to see the daily, their daily needs met. Like, and that they're grumbling, yeah, very offensive, fairly short-sighted, but at the same time, psychologically speaking, in regards to like trying to repair trauma, trying to change your paradigm so dramatically from you're a slave to the Egyptians to, oh, actually, there's a good God who knew you were slaves in Egypt for a long time, but now he's going to make something else happen. It takes a long time. For me and my own life, it's taken a long time for me to acclimate to good. Like, to, it's, it's one thing to trust that God will not blast me into tiny pieces, because should he, he could do that very well. And it's a part of my heart that's always been really willing for God to do that to me. But it's been harder to accept good things. It's, been, it's, much more, it's, it's a certain kind of faith that can bear suffering, but it's a certain kind of faith that can accept goodness. And... 
I have a lot of sympathy for the Jews in the desert, but I also feel like the desert is the point for them right there. Because if they were the, magic, the, the desert seems to be the curriculum, the really refining moment for them. They're supposed to be grumbling, and if you don't mind me using the phrase, bitching, because they don't have the paradigm or psychology to cope with what actually is about to happen. And had God magically whirlwind them into the promised land, they would be bitching still. Like, you don't get a sense that, I think... I feel like it's more nuanced than just, yes, they're fallen, and yes, they have a lack of faith, because it just takes a long time to know one's God. Like, it takes a long time to settle into the fact that if I were a slave in Egypt, and I left Egypt on the whim of following a guy who seems to have the ability to communicate with some larger big thing happening, I don't know if I could articulate every single day that I had a perfect faith. I think I would be waiting for the rug to be pulled out for me every day, especially if I grew up a slave. So, yeah, that's it. That's okay. Well, absolutely. I think all of us, if we think that we would not have acted as they did, then we don't understand ourselves. So I would agree with you that they had all kinds of obstacles against them believing. But the issue is, to what extent are those obstacles, do we identify with and do we understand and do we see how inevitable that is because we, like they, have a hard heart? See, I think the perspective the Bible is taking is that there's some, this is endemic to mankind. This is not the Jews that have this problem. This is human beings who have this problem. That we have hearts that are ready to, are just unwilling to even accept the evidence that God is good. There's this rebelliousness in us, this hostility in us, this allergy in us to God that is always manifesting itself and is always kicking in and being a part of the equation. So I understand it because I am they and they are I. So I understand it, but it doesn't make it right. It doesn't, it doesn't make it any less reprehensible that the creature would be that obdurate, that thick-headed. But I wouldn't want to confuse what the Bible describes as hard-hearted with something that's much more about how cognitively we understand the world, how cerebrally we, we're pattern-finding beings and we're raised in a brutal, slavish culture. It's, we're not going to be emotionally at a stage where we can engage with the idea of a benevolent God if we are raised in a brutal household. So, so there's okay, where but habit is one thing. Unwillingness is another thing. And I think what we're seeing in this event is not just a slave class that is not in the habit of living as free creatures before their creator or in the habit of thinking of God as a good God who's their benefactor, who's taking care of them. All somebody who's in the midst of a habit needs is to be constantly reminded. And remember, they are being constantly reminded. Daily, they're being fed with manna, right? So there's a constant reminder of the goodness of God. We need to retrain our habits. Okay, that's fine. But when you get reminded and you're ready to stone the guy because <laughs> you don't want to be reminded, you don't even want to think that, you don't even want to take that perspective, there's something else going on. It's not just you habitually have not been habituated to the goodness of God. There's something else going on. Yes. I can see that the people who wanted to stone Moses in response to a single day of not getting what they want, yeah, yeah that sounds pretty hard-hearted. But yeah. I guess I just want to make a really clear delineation between those individuals with the Jewish experience in the desert and the ultimate themes of what's the desert about, why the desert exists, why doesn't he just magically transport them to the promised land. I mean, you get a sense that God's taking them through 
a curriculum that's teaching them to understand the promised land when they get there. Yeah, I think I that's mean, right. you look at the generation yeah. that eventually goes there, the spies all go out, and two of them come back, Joshua and I forget, you know, Phil or whatever his Caleb. name is. Caleb, yeah. Caleb, thank you. Like, they come back, and like, you get, they get it. They're like, we don't care how big those dudes are. Like, we got this. Like, it strikes me, fine, yes, right. There's moments where I'm a hard-hearted son of a gun and avoid cussing at churches sometimes. And that's great. And there are other times where I'm just going through this process and it's a nuanced, complicated thing. And we all didn't really start in the same place. Some of us were born into a slave household. Some of us were born a little higher. And the verse that I find extraordinarily powerful is the idea of like, you know, just as your father knows how to give you good gifts, so also your heavenly father understands that kind of thing. Like, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, like that idea that God's taking each person through a curriculum and that the Jews, yeah, I got mad sympathy for the Jews grumbling in the desert. I wouldn't want to be in the desert. I think eating manna every day sounds like eating top ramen every day. That sounds terrible. Like, but I get that at some point, the faith that I think the Jews are coming to is a faith that, that can go into the promised land and still have plenty of reasons to complain when they get there, but they don't because they know what's up. Like, because they've been brought to a place where they understand God more purely, and that's the point of the desert. The hard-heartedness is unfortunate, but I don't know... You know what I'm saying? I just, the psychological growth and the psychological curriculum that's required in becoming a child of God and not just having an allergic reaction to the idea of, of a person who's a magical whirlwind that's giving you top ramen every morning like, and pissed as hell when you complain about top ramen. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, there's a hard-hearted element, but at the same time, the psychological is a big deal. Like, it's at play in our interaction with faith all the time. And I can, be, I can acquiesce to God's path for my life but I still myself, I find myself flinching all the time. Flinch, like every time I go to work, I kind of flinch a little like God could take all this away, which he could. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just have to give God credit for being able to sort out what part of my psychology is just needs to be restructured and to what extent is my heart in rebellion against him. I think he can sort that out. When you get to the event that you were describing where the spies go in and he finally says, not a single one of you is going to get to go into the land except for Caleb and Joshua. The rest of you are going to die in the wilderness. He says, because you have tested me these ten times. God demonstrated a great deal of patience with Israel. And I think when he says, I've tested you these ten times, unlike the movie, it's not because he's an infantile, childish God who doesn't have any wisdom. This is a God who mercifully, patiently, with long-suffering is willing to confront our abject rebellion against him, our hostility toward him, our hatred of him, our complete rejection of him, our willingness to completely ignore him and disregard him, and let it go. But there finally comes a time where there is no repentance. There is no willingness to even learn to have a different heart toward God or a different attitude toward God, and that's when he decides... Okay, their way is wicked continually, I think is how he puts it. They're going their own way continually and ignoring me. Anything else? Perhaps this is an alternative way of looking at the idea of a slave class. I think we are attuned to thinking of groups of people as giant classes. Maybe this is our academic point of view. Hmm. Maybe it's a Marxist point of view. I don't know. Uh, But it seems to me that... if as each one of us recognizes now that we're not merely part of a class, but we are individuals, that all the Jews 
all of them coming out of Egypt and all of them being slaves, were still individuals. And at the end of the time when he tells them during the event that you just spoke of that only Joshua and Caleb will enter the land, the rest will wander in the desert and die in the desert. I can imagine that for the remainder of their days, there were individuals who trusted in God, who believed God, who that rebuke had its effect, who became trusters of God. I'm just theorizing, imagining, speculating, so that, yes, we do act as giant collective groups, but we also act as individuals. I think both points of view are worth bringing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't really have anything to add. I think that's exactly right. And that's ultimately how we're all going to be judged, is as individuals, not as members of a class. Even though the, the ones that remained, other than Joshua and Caleb, spent their remainder of their days wandering in the desert, what more is said of them? Are they still taken care of by God during that time? They just... They are. They just One of the of... things commented on, I think, in Deuteronomy is that their shoes never wore out during all that time. God is still miraculously taking care of them. And I used to think that God's judgment on them by having them die in the wilderness had nothing to say about their eternal well-being, that some of them could still come to faith and get eternal life, even though temporally they were being judged by not being allowed into the land. And that's certainly possible. That's certainly logically possible. The way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, though, and he hints at it here in this passage in Hebrews, suggests to me that their reading of it is the temporal judgment was a mirror of their eternal judgment. They're being judged temporally. The reason that they're being judged temporally is also the same reason that they're going to be condemned eternally, because they don't have a heart for God. So that's a lot of people that went to destruction. Exactly. Very, very, very few. Exactly. Didn't. Tens of thousands of people went to destruction. Two didn't. It's very, very sobering. Well, Moses, I think, is in a category all of his own because the reason he didn't go into the land was for a different reason than, than that. But yeah, no, I'm sorry, three, three people, 10,000. I guess I'm thinking about the hardness of a person's heart and it's the reason for their condemnation was the hardness of their heart, and that if our hearts are not hardened, then God's going to take care of us. But can you elaborate on what does that mean, that God's going to take care of us? Because it seems as though in life there are many people whose hearts are for God who don't seem to be taken care of. You know what I mean as far as on the... on. How yeah. we view being taken care of, and yeah. people get cancer and they die, right. or they people in other countries that are going through wars and and that sort of thing. So, th- it sounds a little odd to say that we are like if I don't know. No, I, I yeah I understand your question. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, we have to we, we can't just straightforwardly take the promises that God made to Israel and apply them to ourselves because what God promised to this group of Israelites is, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and I'm going to lead you into the land which I promised to your fathers, and so on and so forth. There's some very specific and concrete promises to the, that he made to these people. And what he's saying to them is, you will be a benefactor of those promises if you'll just do what I instruct you. So what was the promise to them? That they would go into the land. So it's a very physical, material 
promise that is being made to them. You and I don't have any such promise made to us. But what we do have is the promise of eternal life. So how do I secure eternal life for myself? How do I become a benefactor of that promise? By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I respond to what he has instructed me, what he's taught me, what he's promised me. I embrace it, I believe it, and I take it to heart, and I live my life in the light of that. If I will do that, then I become a benefactor of the promise of eternal life. Does that mean I'm going to be protected from starvation and thirst and cancer and automobile accident? No, no, there's no such promise to me. So is that the point that Paul is making here then to these people? That what you just said? He's, worth trying, he's relating exactly. it to Israel, and yet it's not related to Israel. It's obviously not quite the same thing. Yeah. The, one of the things he's going to say in Hebrews chapter 4 is, they had good news preached to them. We have good news preached to us also. It's a different good news, though. So the promise to them is specific to them. The promise to us is an entirely different thing, and the promise that he has in mind is the gospel of eternal life. So with respect to the promise of eternal life, what he's warning them is, don't harden your hearts like they did. They missed out on the particular good news, the particular promise that was made to them. They missed out on that because they hardened their hearts. You don't want to be hardening your hearts against the good news and the promise that's been proclaimed to you. And remember how they're doing that. They're saying, I'm tired of this Jesus stuff. I'm out of here. I'm just going to go back to the temple and offer turtle doves to God at the temple because this Jesus stuff is just not cutting it for me. And he would see that. That's the counterpart of, can we have a leader take us back to Egypt? Is there anybody know the way to Egypt? I want to go back to Egypt. That's what they're doing. They are spiritually in the same sort of place that the Israelites, their fathers, were in the wilderness when they weren't willing to just let God keep his promise to them in the way that he's going to keep his promise to them. And why? Because they actually had to suffer a little bit along the way. They're going without water when they didn't want to go without water. They're going without food when they didn't want to go without food. The Amalekites attack them. And they're weary of the suffering. They miss the leeks and onions of Egypt. The quail doesn't taste nearly as good without leeks and onions. And so they miss all that stuff, and they want to go back. And Paul sees a parallel between that and where these Hebrew believers are. In a way, the Hebrew believers that Paul's writing to are suffering way more than their fathers did. They're going hungry. These guys are being killed, imprisoned, beaten, ripped off, cheated. They're ostracized by the people around them. And because they're unwilling to endure the suffering that God is taking them through, they just want to turn their back on the whole good news promise that's been made to them. If this is what it's going to cost me to get to eternal life, then I guess maybe I don't want eternal life. Is in effect what they're saying. And that's what Paul is warning them. He's saying that's just like what Moses was putting up with, with Israel in the day. I like what Toby said about using the phrase, the curriculum of life. It strikes me that God is here. We kind of overlook it, but he uses the the physical, material, and historical elements of this life as part of the, the recipe. It's part of the pieces on the board that are being moved around. But he isn't limited to what they can do. 
because we see a whole generation of people moving through the desert, it's a rough time, and they get to their promised land, it's like, oh, heck no. It's just going to be more work, more risk, more danger, more war. Um, no, we're scared. They're bigger than we are. And then they, he says, okay, you're going to get it. But these are the people that raise the next generation. So you have an entire generation at least being raised by hard-hearted, rebellious, unbelieving Hebrews. And yet when they come back around and they come to the gates of the promised land, they go, okay, we'll go. Where'd that come from? They had the same basic experience that their parents did, and they were raised by unbelieving parents. Yet when they got their chance, they went in. Didn't they have the same curriculum? How come they passed? Yeah. And, and it, it amazes me that we see in the end it is God who changes your mind, not circumstances or consequences. Right, right. And, and I feel like in this respect, God kind of reminds me of my dad or my wrestling coach in high school. It's like, how many times do we have to go through this? You are, you are a knothead. I show you how to do it, and then you do it wrong. And then you experience negative consequences, and you do it again. What is wrong with you? I don't know how many times I've heard that in my life. But, and God is saying the same thing through Moses. What is wrong with you? And yet the people never sit down. That's a good question. We should answer that. Let's sit here around this bitter springs for a couple of weeks, and let's answer that question. And so they don't get it. If you take the big picture... It's really a great story. I mean, yeah. I, I, let me underline one of the points you made. I, I am more and more convinced that what you said is absolutely true. You know, what makes the difference between one person and the next person, one generation and the next generation? It's just God. It's what God is doing in creating us and making us the people that He's making us. There's no way we can create an environment that's going to make our children be believers. There's no way our parents could create an environment that would make us be believers. We are not shaped by our environment, ultimately. We're shaped by our choices, how we respond to our environment, how we respond to what input comes into our life. And the only one who controls that besides ourself is my creator, is God. I am the creature that God is creating me to be. And from my perspective... I am the being that I am creating myself to be through the choices that I make. And that's the tension that's in this chapter that we're about to look at. This at he says, do not harden your hearts. What, why are you talking to me? Why don't you talk to my creator? <laughs> what do you mean, do not harden your heart? Well, because from our experience, that's exactly how, that's exactly how God hardens my heart. By putting it in my will to be resistant, to be rebellious, rebellious, to be obstinate, to be stubborn, and to stiff-arm God. And I, I know you know from your own experience, you can feel it, right? I mean, you can feel it happening when it happens. You come to this decision point, and you said, I'm going to go here. I'm pissed at what God is doing in my life, and damn it, I'm going to fix him. I'm going to show him. And I have this little hissy fit, this little temper tantrum against God, as if it's any problem to God, as if I'm actually doing him any damage. But in my hubris, I think that I'm showing him. And you can almost feel 
all that energy, all that negativity, all that antagonism toward him well up within you. I think that's hardening your heart. And the solution is really easy. Jack, cut it out. Just stop it. And on the one hand, it's easy. On the other hand, that's the hardest thing, the most heroic thing that any of us will ever do is to just decide to cut it out. Don't be that person. Be a different person. Be a person who truly is willing to be the creature before the creator and allow the creator to make your script, to write your script, to script your life. Allow the creator to take you where he wants to take you, to make you what he wants to make you, to bless you in the way he wants to bless you, to confine you in the way he wants to confine you. Just let it happen. Let him be the Lord. Let him be the creator. Let him be the maker. And stop fighting. Just be who you are to be. On the one hand, it's a simple decision that we have to make. On the other hand, it takes the power of God at work in my heart for me to ever do that. And it's a miracle that any of us ever become that person rather than who we are more naturally that rebellious, resistant person that we are by nature. So you see that tension right here in this chapter. Do not harden your hearts as they did, where he's putting it full square in a decision, a choice that we are going to make. But this is the same Paul who said, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Same dude. He knows full well that this whole thing is in the hands of God on the one hand, but it doesn't stop him for a second from appealing to us to make an existential choice, a personal choice, to bow our knee to God and stop fighting him, stop resisting him. That's the one and only one thing that I like about Islam. (laughs) That's what Islam is supposed to be, submission to God. What a joke. On the one hand, when you see the reality of what Islam is and what is produced in the world, it is an absolute perversion of the very name Islam. But there's something in the name is something exactly right, is that one part, one striking element of what it means to be a child of God is to submit to the will of the maker, of the creator. Don't fight it. Don't resist it but just submit to that and allow God to be God. Anything else on the Exodus account or anything else we've talked about? Okay, you know what I'm going to do then? I think let's stop early because to get into anything else, we have to get into the woods of the psalm and what Paul does with it, and I think it would be better to take the whole time to do that. So this is probably a good place to stop. So unless you have one... Oh, oh, one, one last question. So how do you, you know, the question, ultimate question is, how do you know what God's will is for your life? And how do you know that something, because something's hard, it's not just God challenging you or that it's not his will? How do you know the difference um, between that? Life is hard, obviously, and things happen, and you don't know if it is it's hard to know if it's God or if it's just circumstances. And so at what point do you realize this is God's will and you give in to it? And what point do you think, okay, maybe I'm going the wrong way. <laughs> I need to you know, turn around. 
I guess that's my question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. Before I answer that directly, I think it's important to realize I know growing up a really, really big deal in the youth groups that I was a part of and the Sunday school classes I was a part of. It was always the question was, how do you know God's will for your life? And the model that they were working with and that I certainly adopted was we're moving along and God has some preferences about what we do with our life and God is somehow going to communicate to us what his preferences are and then it's my job to one, hear what he's telling me about his preferences and then secondly, decide to get in line with that. In studying the Bible, I came to realize that that's a completely false model there's nothing about that way of that picture, that way of looking at it that's right. God is not whispering in my ear. He's got my ankles and he's moving my feet. <laughs> and I can't, I, it's not possible to be out of his will in that sense. You understand what I'm saying? I am always right on script. Now, part of the script sometimes is to be seduced by things that I, that I shouldn't be attracted to and to make choices that I shouldn't make, and so on. And what I need, the wisdom that God wants to teach me is to have the discernment to know the difference between what's wise and good and righteous and what's foolish and destructive and evil. I need to learn that, and through life I'm going to learn the difference between those two things. The only thing I can know is outside the will of God, is what the Bible explicitly teaches me is evil, unrighteous, and foolish. That's never what God wants for me. Or if in certain special circumstances, it's never happened to me, but there are people in history to whom it's happened where God has come along and somehow communicated to them specifically, here's what I want you to do. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. You better go to Nineveh. If you don't want to be swallowed, you want to go to Nineveh. So if God specifically tells me something, then obviously I know his will. But that's really rare. It never happened to me. So I have to live my life recognizing that one thing I know for sure, God wants me to choose wisdom and forsake folly. So I need to become wise. I need to learn what wisdom dictates. And then as I learn what wisdom dictates, choose it and go in the direction that wisdom takes me. So how do you know? Well, over the course of time, we learn wisdom. Once we've learned that, and as best we can pursue wisdom, then we are pursuing the will of God. Now, everything else that happens, the circumstances outside of my control, even my own mistakes, even my own moral failings are in the will of God in some sense. There's nothing that is not accomplished by God and under his control and done by God. So I need to learn how to respond to what's happened to me in wisdom, in a way that's consistent with the truth. Now, come back at me. Did I... Did I? Yeah, I think so. It just still feels like I'm flying blind sometimes. <laughs> I just don't know. You know, it, it feels like the Bible is, is full of so many contradictions sometimes about, you know, between the Old and New Testament, about things that are important for God for us to do. And so... It, it feels like the church in general just kind of picks and chooses about different things to worry about, I guess. And so... Give me an example. Oh, well, I mean, cloven hooves. You can't eat anything with cloven hooves or just head coverings or any of those things, just for generalizations, you know, just things that were a big issue at one point or another and now have kind of not gotten that way. And 
I don't know. It just there's a lot of stuff that's kind of been gray areaed out. For okay. So it just it's like at what point do you start straying and backsliding, and what point are you just making mistakes? I guess. Okay. Well, two things. One, what we need to learn is wisdom, and part of wisdom is going to be able to understand why did you tell the Jews not to eat things with cloven hooves? And why did you tell the women through the Apostle Paul that you should wear a veil in public when you pray or prophesy, you women? Why did he say that? It's not enough to know that he said that. See, unfortunately, we Christians have been way too simple-minded about this. It says in the Bible that you have your head covered, so you should have your head covered. Well, the Bible says a lot of things, but why does it say it? And does the why, therefore, make it something that is relevant to me in my situation? That's a perfectly valid thing to ask. And wisdom is going to be able to answer those questions. Now, it's not easy. We have to work together. We have to talk about it. We have to dialogue. We have to do our research so that we can study the Bible intelligently and come up with intelligent interpretations of what it is that the Bible is actually teaching us. But that's where wisdom comes from, is intelligently understanding what the Bible is actually teaching me. Okay, what if we make a mistake? Well, it's not about getting it right. It's about wanting to get it right. It's about having a heart that wants to honor God, wants to know him, wants to serve him. God is not the kind of God that's going to slap me down for wanting to get it right and trying to get it right and making a mistake. What does he do to people who make a mistake? He teaches them and makes them wiser. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't condemn them. So we need to relax a little bit, recognizing that God is a merciful God who all he's asking for is me. All he's asking for is my heart. All he's asking is that I be a person who's chosen to want to honor him and want to love him and want to know him and want to serve him. If I start there, everything else is going to take care of itself over time. Thank you. I was thinking a little bit about what you guys were saying about the Jews in the wilderness and the, this whole idea of, of a curriculum you know, mm-hmm. for teaching us righteousness. And on the one hand, I like the idea of, of life as a curriculum. On the other hand, I think there's something different going on with the Jews that's specific to what God's interested in doing with them. And, and I think that something that's essential to understanding that is that what keeps coming back as a theme is what are the nations going to learn or think about what God is doing in history with the Jews? And you see that when God is confronted with the wickedness of the Jews after giving the law on Mount Sinai, he, I think there says to Moses, you know, okay, I've just given you the law on these tablets. And what did the people do, you know, while you've been up here these 40 days? They just built a calf for themselves and they're worshiping it. How about I wipe them all out and I start over and build a new people through you and I'll fulfill my promises through you instead and Moses, his response is, well, what's the rest of the world going to think? You know, what are they going to say that you weren't able to save your people, that you weren't able to bring them into, into the promised land? I mean, what are they going to think about you and the kind of God that you are? And one of the things that we keep coming back to in Jeremiah is God is very interested in communicating to the rest of the nations the truth and the import of what he's doing in judging his people. So I think it's significant in the episode in the wilderness that instead of it being a curriculum for their edification where at 
40 years at the end of it, they're going to enter the land. You see that it's, and I think you brought this up with regard to how the New Testament authors take it, it's a mirror of their judgment. They're not going to enter the, the rest. I mean, they're going to miss out on that because as opposed to us, here with these people, God is interested in kind of playing out for the rest of the world how he deals with people who test him, how he deals with people who are resistant to his will and who are unbelieving, essentially. I think that's what's going on there. Yeah, that's good. I think that's right. Okay, had enough? Okay. <laughs>